Good morning. My name is Dina Dejani. I'm with the Center for Global Policy. Thank you for joining us today. The Center for Global Policy is a think tank focused on policy research and analysis. This podcast is the latest edition of our series called The Lodestar, where we do a deep dive into critical international issues and explore that issue in detail. This is our second podcast focused on the global refugee crisis. And specifically today, we're going to be talking about the Syrian refugee crisis. Uh, according to a recent report published by the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, their Global Trends 2020 report, 2020 has seen a huge leap in global refugee numbers. Current reporting estimates the number of refugees and internally displaced people to be at over 79 million or 1% of the global population which represents an increase of over 9 million since last year's estimate. Syrian refugees and internally displaced peoples or IDPs account for a significant portion of this population as the Syrian civil war has caused 6 million people to leave Syria as refugees and another 6 million to become internally displaced people. With little hope of the civil war, which has spurred all these refugees ending in the near future. As an added complicating factor, the COVID-19 pandemic has underscored the vulnerability of Syrian refugees as camp conditions are not conducive to the successful implementation of public health practices and migration pathways have been severely disrupted as a result of the pandemic. Given all of this, what if any options are available for Syrian refugees? Will our global system of resettlement and repatriation provide any relief, particularly considering the size of this population and the ongoing pandemic-related travel constraints? As I mentioned, this podcast is the second in a series exploring the additional stresses placed on refugee populations during COVID-19. And as I also mentioned, we're focused on the Syrian population. They're scattered across half a dozen countries in hopes of finding their ways into new lives in a stable setting, but there are significant obstacles in achieving this goal. Joining me today to talk about this, I'm very pleased to introduce Sahar Atrash. She is a senior advocate for the, for the Middle East at Refugees International. Prior to joining Refugees International, Sahar was a senior advocacy officer at the Syrian American Medical Society, or SAMS, where she led research and advocacy efforts around Syrian policy and humanitarian issues in the, in the United States and the Middle East. Sahar also was a senior analyst on the Middle East and North Africa at the International Crisis Group, where her policy reports and articles were the basis of direct international advocacy and media engagement. Her research has taken her to, re to refugee camps and conflict zones throughout the Middle East, where she has conducted significant research, um, interviewing affected individuals and collaborating with local communities on, the, on this crisis. So Sahar, thank you so much for joining us. Could you please give us a sense of what it's like to be a Syrian refugee today? Thank you, Dina, and thank you for having me. Happy to be with you today. To start, I want to talk about one specific Syrian refugee whose story is a bit significant, telling us about what is it to be a Syrian refugee today. This Syrian woman, her name is Rima. Um, she was finishing her PhD in Damascus when the war uh, broke. She couldn't finish her PhD in finances because of the conflict and the violence. She got separated from her kids briefly, but then uh, she fled to save her three children. She's a single mom. She fled to Lebanon. And from Lebanon, you know, the situation for her was very difficult. She moved to Jordan. She lived in Jordan for a couple of years. But then um, 
she came to the States and applied for a temporary protective status, which provide a temporary uh, asylum for uh, refugees um, fleeing war, basically, and conflict. Uh, it's been now, I think, four years that she's been living in the States. She's still, her application for asylum still has not been approved. And now she's facing a new reality with the new Trump's policies. Uh, she risked being deported from uh, the U.S. because, you know, uh, with the new policy, you have to be, you only um, are allowed to apply to asylum uh, if the U.S. is your first country of uh, refuge and if you applied for this for the country and were not granted asylum. So now uh, Rima, with her ch three children, you know, after having more or less settled in the U.S., is facing this new reality. And to be honest, still, despite all these hardship, Rima is considered about... Uh, among the most uh, luckiest because, you know, the vast majority of Syrian refugees are living in very dire conditions, not even comparable to what Rima is going through. So so that that's very interesting. So even though she is really, we can classify her as a success story in one way, she really hasn't um, gotten to the place um, you know, a really achieved success, which is finding a place that's both stable, stable and secure for her to live in, and ideally a place which has opportunities for her. So she's somebody who's educated, who could go on to be a contributor to her community, her new community that she's resettled um, through her work and through her, you know, by using her education. But even she, who has, you know, managed to arrive to a safe place, is not experiencing the security that we would we would hope at this point. Is that is that the case? Yeah. Yes, very true, very true. And this is what we've seen with a lot of uh, Syrian refugees, you know. Um, an important part of the Syrian refugee community are well-educated, you know. They, um, I mean, Syria before the war was con considered a middle-income country. Uh, people had access to services, they had access to education. Um, and what we've seen is that Syrian refugees in general have a lot, you know, to give to communities where they're settled. Um, you had, you know, teachers, doctors, engineers, uh, but also all types of professions that fled the country. And as you uh, very truly mentioned, Dina, uh, Rima is among the luckiest, you know, because she had the chance to come to the U.S. The only problem, you know, all she was looking for is just some stability and some safety for her children. But even this has become basically uh, a luxury or, you know, inaccessible to her. Rima has no Syrian passport because, you know, she cannot renew her passport. So now if she's deported, she doesn't know where she can go. And, and and the story of Rima is just one example of a lot of other stories of what Syrian refugees go through, or refugees, not just Syrian, but it happens that we're talking about Syrians today. Um, people are really looking after, you know, they have lost everything. Uh, they have lost their houses, their belongings, their memories, you know, everything. All they're looking for is some sense of safety and stability a little hope for the future but even this small dreams are they are being denied 
Yes. Um, so, you know, when you compare Rima with others in the Syrian population, um, it's really striking how she really has managed to uh, travel such a long distance considering the obstacles that have been placed in her way. But in terms of all the rest of the 6 million population, um, can you let, give us a sense of what's, what the standard situation is for these populations? You know, they're scattered around um, more than half a dozen countries in the region. A significant amount of the Syrian refugees are in Turkey. Many of them are in Greece being held up there. The COVID pandemic has made their travel harder. Um, a similarly significant number has been resettled in the EU, in Germany. So can you give us a sense of what the situation is like for other Syrian refugees who have been displaced as a result of the, of the Syrian crisis? Yes, of course. I mean, as I mentioned, uh, really, the uh, Rima is one of the privileged because, uh, uh, yes, there are around six million refugees scattered in the region, and uh, the situation is different in each country. Um, there's a little bit around one million Syrian refugees living in Lebanon. Uh, in Lebanon, this is uh, the situation of Syrian refugees is the worst. You know, they. I was in Lebanon in October researching um, the situation of Syrian refugees, and um, I've seen, you know, like conditions in the camps really that I've never seen before, uh, where people are literally living in in, you know, in very very bad conditions, unhealthy. Um, um, you know, the the shelters are uh, either too hot or too cold. Um, tents have been flooded during winter. Uh, in Lebanon, like the vast majority of Syrian refugees are really uh, suffering. And uh, unsurprisingly, the vast majority feel they are not settled in the country. Uh, Turkey is a bit different. Syrian refugees in Turkey have been also been struggling. There's uh, around 3.5 million. So Turkey is among the, the countries that hosted the most refugees. Some have settled. So some have, uh, uh, you know, got the Turkish citizenship, but the vast majority is also now live in a kind of instability. The situation in Turkey has been deteriorating. The economic downturn, um, turned people against Syrian refugees. So we've seen in the past year or so um, assaults and attack against, you know, Syrian refugees, shops held by refugees. And what we've seen also more uh, worryingly last year is deportation of Syrian refugees from Turkey into Idlib at a time where Idlib was really under attack from the Syrian regime and uh, Russia. So, yeah, this is the situation of Syrian refugees in, uh, in Turkey. There's a lot of informal uh, working in the informal sector. So there has been also a crackdown on uh, working Syrians in Turkey. Greece is, again, like a different situation where most of the refugees are on islands, uh, awaiting, you know, to be resettled in a third country. Uh, and the situations on the islands are also very deplorable, you know, um, and they've been what's supposed to be a, a very temporary situation has been dragging on for years now. So uh, this is just to say a little bit of what the refugees in the region are going through. Yes, it seems like one thing that 
one commonality in all of these situations is that there's no pathway to citizenship that's being discussed, which it, it seems to me that that's a critical component of actually you know, achieving stability and security. Um, can you can you comment on that and say, you know, let, let us know like what what kind of refugee do to get get themselves on a pathway to citizenship at this point in time in any one of these countries, including in Jordan, which is also a major destination for Syrians that we have not yet touched upon. The situation of Syrians in Jordan is a bit better than in other countries we mentioned because of the Jordan compact. There has been a kind of uh, attempt between Jordan and the EU uh, to offer some opportunities, mostly uh, work opportunities for Syrians. And uh, despite, you know, a, a significant numbers living in, um, in camps and restricted mobility, um, there is a little bit a sense of more security in Jordan for Syrian refugees than in other countries. Um, but to answer your question, Dina, um, this is a problem we face worldwide. So um, following the so-called refugee crisis, you know, uh, in 2014, 2015, where hundreds of thousands of mostly Syrian refugees, you know, fled Syria, through Turkey, through Greece, through other countries, and tried to reach Europe mostly. What we've seen since is uh, Europe and the US in general and all other countries that could be uh, countries of resettlements have closed up on Syrian refugees. So now, for example, what we're seeing in European countries, including Germany and other, you know, Scandinavian countries, is really trying to push back refugees to return to Syria. So there's this whole narrative that the war has uh, ended, uh, that the situation is safer right now in Syria. So the opportunity for resettlement and for getting citizenship or asylum in third countries has really uh, diminished significantly in the past few years. And this is why what we're seeing is basically uh, the vast majority of the six million people we're talking about are basically live, living in a kind of a limbo. Um, they can't go back to Syria. A lot of them can't go back to Syria. They don't have a decent life in the country now. They're settled in and there's no prospect for the future. They're just waiting, you know, for something to happen to change their situation. So you just said a lot of things that are really interesting, I think, um, both in terms of what our global models are for managing refugees and in terms of um, what the options are for, for those refugees. Um, I think, you know, the, the Jordan Compact is a very interesting model because it's very divergent from what we've seen in recent years in terms of um, a bilateral agreement between nations to, to provide support for refugees, but also it's, it's much wider ranging. It um, also, it's, it's, it's an economic, it's part of the, the refugee package is part of an economic package between the two countries, um, which is very significantly different from how we've processed refugees in the past. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that that's really interesting, but I'm also really interested to kind of explore what you were talking about, about the narrative of Syria being a safe place to return to at the moment. Um, I think there's a lot of evidence out there that this really isn't the case. So could you expand on that narrative a little bit? Like, is it is it something, 
is 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 any part of it based in reality and uh is is this actually an option you know i i know that when we talk about refugees um one of the most important components of kind of the package of policy regarding refugees that we have is repatriation so i think that you know maybe there's something about the desire to repatriate that's in conflict with the re- reality of the situation there in terms of how safe it is. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Sure, sure. So repatriation is one of the, I think, three or four uh, possible durable solutions. Uh, one one possibility is resettlement. Uh, the other is just, you know, um, settling in the country of first asylum. Or the return is definitely uh, considered the durable solution, and uh, it is expected that you know that refugees will will return home ultimately. The problem in Syria, and as I said, like there's the whole narrative that the war has wound down. Um, basically, the Syrian reg- regime, you know, um, took over the vast majority of the territory, and then now it is safe for refugees to return. What this narrative ignores is many different aspects of why people um, protested in the first place and why people fled Syria. Um, Some fled the violence, you know, because they didn't feel safe. But a lot of the refugees are considered, you know, between brackets, political refugees. Uh, In Lebanon, when I was in Lebanon, I spoke to many refugees uh, you know, even, you know, communities coming from specific areas, whether you would tell me that it's impossible for them to go back to Syria as long as, um, uh, you know, this current regime is in place because they fear persecution, they fear retaliation, they wouldn't feel safe if they would go back uh, to their to, to Syria, like their life would be at risk. Um, so safety and security is the first concern for refugees when they want to consider going back. And uh, this has kind of uh, dissuaded many refugees from returning to Syria. Uh, there are a lot of other considerations. You know, until now, many regions are still destroyed. You know, there's no real uh, reconstruction process. Many regions are denied the basic services. So. Um, a lot of refugees don't feel also, you know, safe to move their families to area where they wouldn't have even a shelter, they wouldn't have access to the most basic needs, uh, water, electricity, uh, and, and, you know, uh, other, other needs. Um, there's, of course, you know, political activists, journalists, um, Everyone who's been a bit outspoken about their uh, opposition to the Syrian regime would not return to Syria. And this is, I think, what's being missed in the conversation, the idea that um, we don't know really the numbers, but I think a significant number of Syrian refugees simply cannot return to Syria. Uh, I want to give the example of Lebanon, of you know people I met who are really living in very, very dire situation, you know, like uh, um, really inimaginable. So uh, um, 
these people, despite, you know, living in, you know, like not even tents, you know, it's living in the open air sometimes, uh, where sewage is, you know, just running uh, next to them. They don't have access to any, you know, healthcare or any water, you know, they drink polluted water, still didn't make the decision to go back to Syria because uh, uh, they feel that the situation over there is even worse. And now, as you probably know, the situation, the economic situation in Syria has been uh, even worse. You know, there's a a deep uh, devaluation of the Syrian lira. Um, I'm receiving reports, you know, of really people not being able to feed their families. So all these are uh, reasons that really prevent uh, returns to Syria uh, as in, in under these circumstances. Yes, and of course, we also have the COVID crisis now, the pandemic, and it sounds like, um, Based on what we need, well, based on what we know for the public health management of the pandemic, it sounds like the conditions that are required to manage that are not something that Syrian refugees can access upon their return for for certain, but also possibly in the camps in which they live, kind of scattered around the region. Yes, that- very, yes, very true, very true. What we've seen is. You know, usually because uh, refugees are the weakest, I would say, uh, chain, it's much easier for governments to crack down on refugees. So what we've seen, for example, is uh, in Lebanon, there was uh, um, attempts, you know, uh, restrictions on the mobility, for example. Uh, At the same time, refugees have no access to health care. We've been so far more or less fortunate that we haven't seen a real outbreak of COVID-19 in refugee settings. But I think if an outbreak happens, the consequences will be devastating because, um, you know, all the measures required from hygiene to social distancing to disinfection, uh, wearing masks, all of these are, you know, not really available for refugees, most of refugees living in camps. Um, what we've seen also, you know, the economic uh, impact, the global economic impact of COVID-19, which, you know, affected very deeply the economies of the different countries, whether it's Turkey, Lebanon, uh, Jordan, is also uh, having a great impact on refugees. Refugees are usually the first um, to be sacrificed, kind of. Um, So uh, access to work was already very difficult. Now it's becoming even more challenging and then have been uh, some, you know, some attempts to even crack down on informal uh, workers in Lebanon and other countries. Yeah, so a lot going on there. Um, let's turn for a moment to the status of Syrian internally displaced people and, and, and specifically what's going on in the northern part of Syria in Idlib province. Yes. Um, can you, yes, go ahead. 
Sure. Uh, before we go, we switch to Idlib, I just wanted to make a quick comment on the Jordan impact and you know the deal that was made uh, between Turkey and Europe. Uh, if that's okay. Sure. Go ahead. Um, because I think you know this is a model that's very interesting, but also that proves it lim- its limits. So what we've seen, for example, is that both Jordan but more Turkey has exploited the fear, you know. Uh, in Europe from receiving a new wave of refugees. And this tells us how problematic, you know, Europe have dealt has dealt with the Syrian refugees, but also how these different countries exploit, you know, the, the refugee uh, card to reap more benefits or, you know, whether it's financial or political. And for me, this has been a bit problematic because what we've seen is Turkey really manipulated the refugee card? You know, recently it uh, threatened to open the border and let refugees uh, reach Europe. So um, refugees has really been used uh, in the political power struggles between different nations. So I just wanted to make this comment just to say that sometimes, you know, these models can be very um, uh, successful. So in Jordan, it has, you know, it has had some positive effect, but it's not, you know, a kind of a panacea, I would say. Yeah, sure. Um, that's that's interesting uh, because, of course, when we talk about refugees, it's not only a humanitarian crisis we're talking about. It's a political crisis and, you know, nations have to manage that and find a way of doing so with the acceptance of their own existing citizenry. So I think it is a very complicated question um and it ranges far beyond just humanitarian support for displaced populations yeah okay thank you for that um so let's talk about the idps for a minute and what's going on in idlib because by by all um reports the war is very active in that region still ongoing despite the narrative we were speaking of earlier Yes, very true. So um, a quick background on Idlib. So Idlib is in northwest Syria and Idlib has is considered, you know, the last stronghold of uh, the opposition. It's the last uh, part of the territory that is still controlled by um, armed groups, including some jihadi groups. Um, uh, Idlib has uh, around three million People, three million civilians, more than the, more than half are themselves displaced from other uh, parts of the country. So from Hamas, Ghouta, um, Dara, um, and and other places. Um, for two times now since uh, 2019, uh, the regime backed by Russia has launched an offensive against Idlib trying to retake uh, the territory. And what we've seen is with these, you know, offensive is again, uh, huge uh, waves of displacement. So in, uh, in 2000, in early 2019, over 1 million people have been displaced by the fighting and the violence. And then again, um, a ceasefire was reached, but then again, there was an, a, a renewed military campaign in late uh, 2019 and early 2020 that also displaced um, around 1 million people. 
The situation in Idlib is also very difficult. We have around uh, 1.2 million people living in refugee camps, um, mostly along the border with, with Turkey. The situation at these camps is also very, very uh, difficult. You know, overcrowdedness is always a problem in this uh, in this uh, in these settings lack of access to services lack of access to uh, work uh, more than two-thirds of the population now in idlib relies on uh, humanitarian assistance um, what we've seen uh, during the last uh, the last military campaign is because of the overcrowdedness and because the lack of shelters families were re literally uh, finding refuge in the open air. So we've seen, we have pictures of people literally, you know, um, taking olive trees as, you know, their shelter, basically. Um, the problem in Idlib, of course, it also has been impacted by the economic uh, crisis and the uh, depreciations of the Lebanese pound, of the, I'm sorry, the Syrian pound. Um, the problem is that people uh, inside Idlib feel literally trapped. Um, the border with Turkey is closed. Uh, Turkey uh, doesn't want to welcome any more refugees. And uh, from the other side, they have, you know, the Syrian regime and, and Russia um, launch, launching uh, military offensive against them. Um, and now... Uh, now with the you know COVID nineteen, so for the past few months there were no cases reported, but in the past couple of weeks now we have at least twenty two cases of COVID nineteen confirmed inside Idlib, and there's really um, worries that if an outbreak happens in Idlib, you know the province is not really equipped to deal with such an outbreak. Um, uh, the health system has been weakened, you know, by uh, systematic and repeated relentless attacks on hospitals and other medical facilities. Um, I remember in early 2020, more than 50 or 60 hospitals had, uh, you know, went out of uh, work because of, because of uh, uh, strikes and attacks. Um, the humanitarian community and the medical uh, professionals are already extremely overwhelmed, you know, because of the growth in the population and, of course, the drain of human capitals from the province. So Idlib really faces a lot of challenges and um, the situation is only going to get worse. Uh, there's the fear that, you know, um, there's going to be another round of violence. So people in Idlib really live in constant fear, too. So, uh, yeah, this is uh, it's a really very sad situation inside the province. Yeah, sounds like it. Um, thank you for all that. Um, let's let's go back for a moment um, to the situation of Rima. Um, who has managed to make her way to the United States, as we were talking at the beginning of this podcast, um, in search of security and stability. Uh, and, you know, this idea that 
the ability to gain security and opportunity is closely linked to the policies of the country of their resettlement. So in the case of Rima, the refugee whose story you outlined at the beginning of the podcast, she's in the United States now on, under temporary protected status. Um, and the United States is on the verge of an election whose outcome will have a definite impact on her future and the future of her children. Because of the extremely divergent policies on immigration and refugees that are two candidates have um, who are in this year's election. Um, can you give me a rundown of what the possible outcomes are for Rima, depending on which party wins the election? Sure, sure. So, um, I mean, it's not a secret that, you know, the Trump's administration policy, uh, immigration policy has been very detrimental to refugees and immigrants uh, overall, whether Syrians or, you know, any other type of immigrants. Um, what we've seen is the Trump administration repeatedly imposing restrictions on asylum seeker, on uh, resettling refugees. So just to give you uh, a quick uh, number to, to give a sense of how restrictive this policy has been, um, this year there has only been 18,000 uh, uh, refugees resettled as opposed to nearly 100,000 in 2016. In 2016, the U.S. resettled more than half uh, uh, the total refugees that have been resettled in the world. Um, with the Trump administration, we've really seen a crackdown, I would say, on immigration and on asylum. Um, now there, there's even, you know, uh, uh, this executive order that requires uh, immigrants and, you know, other asylees to uh, provide proof of wealth, for example, so that we don't need assistance from the, uh, from the government. The so-called Muslim ban, you know, has prevented many, many families from coming uh, to, the, to the state and has caused, you know, um, separation between families so one parent would be here couldn't uh, bring the rest of the family and um, anyway so so and i think you know um if trump is re-elected this policy is just going to continue and i think the future of rima and probably thousands of other refugees uh, is really uh, uncertain um in his campaign, Joe Biden um, is making a commitment that he wants to reverse these policies. Uh, he wants to revoke the so-called uh, Muslim ban. He wants to uh, provide, you know, safety and security and kind of taking pride from the idea that the U.S. has always been a country of resettlement. So I think the outcome of the election will really have a great impact on um, hundreds, I think, of thousands of immigrants and refugees and asylum seekers um, on their future and, you know, this hope for some sense of security and stability. So two, diff two extremely different outcomes, depending on what happens in the next several months in the United States for Syrian refugee populations and for Rima specifically, for sure. Well, Sahar, that brings us to the end of our podcast today. 
thank you very much for joining us. This has been Dina Dejani and with my guest Sahar Atrash talking about the policies and situations surrounding the Syrian refugee crisis. Sahar, thank you so much. Thank you, Dina. Thank you for having me. Just one thing, you know, uh, I would like to highlight is that people, when they hear about refugees, they have, you know, a stereotype of refugees, you know, of being, you know, uh, destitute, uneducated, or uh, living in camps. Um, in my work, I meet refugees like on a on a regular basis, and I I am amazed, and I le- learn so much from the courage, from the bravery I see in people, and I just wish sometimes people can really see what I see when I meet with refugees. So I really would like for uh, to break the stereotype, and I hope that I was able to do this today. Sahar Atrash of Refugees International, thank you so much for joining me today for your expertise in this area is impressive and I really appreciate that final comment. I look forward to our future conversations. Thank you very much. Thank you.